This was no mistake. The Eagles go wire to wire on the road in Tempe and beat Arizona State's 30 to 21. First time now in four plus seasons that Herm Edwards and company have been upset by a non-conference opponents here on their home field. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Drink. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage. Part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Drink. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Chatting Yardage. Week four is upon us here coming up this weekend and week three, of course, which we just got through. Lived up to the hype in, in, in several ways. You know, it, this time of year for, for college football um, is always always kind of an interesting one because more often than not, your your higher tier teams are kind of playing the softer part of their schedule. You know, in, in week one, you can typically expect high ranked matchups between you know larger teams. But then as you get into week two, week three, and even week four, Michigan, um, you know, you you expect some of your you know your ranked teams to play cupcakes, so to speak. But that's not to say that there wasn't still plenty of uh, plenty of interesting things happening. Uh, this past weekend, and of course, I'm here to break it all down and discuss it with you. Uh, if you're new to the show, my name is Cam Matthews. You can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. And if you happen to be a baseball fan, check out our mother podcast, Chatting Average, a uh, Braves-centric baseball podcast uh, with a little bit of a little bit of everything for everyone. So we. Certainly encourage you to check that out. Week three, of course, started with uh, with college game day all the way up in Boone here in the North Carolina mountains. Uh, about a I don't know about a three three and a half hour drive from where where I'm currently sitting. But you know it, it's cool to see game day go to different locations like that. You know I think we've gotten we've gotten so used to over the past several years if not decade plus of seeing college game day and ESPN go to you know go to Columbus Ohio and go you know to Baton Rouge and go you know go to Alabama and you know or go to Auburn go to go to Knoxville um we we've gotten really used to them going to the quote unquote big matchups pretty much on an annual basis so it's nice to see them, you know, break away from that mold and go to uh, go to a new campus for the very first time, you know, for a school that has been lighting up the headlines like Appalachian State has. And boy, what a what a sight it, that was, you know, getting to see seeing pictures of fans, you know, camped out 
12 hours, you know, or more prior to the show actually starting. And, you know, and the crowd they were able to pull and the video of the bus pulling into town. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's really cool. And then, of course, Appalachian was hosting one of their conference rivals in Troy. Appalachian had won, uh, you know, had won five in a row coming into Saturday against Troy. And, and suddenly found themselves down, you know, with, with a couple of seconds left on the clock, and uh, miracle on the mountain happens with a, with a hail mary throw that is batted, beat around, and then finally brought down short of the goal line by by an app player who then uh, is able to swing it around and, and take it to the pylon, you know, for a touchdown for for the win. Talk about a talk about an exciting first three weeks uh, for the Mountaineers. Of course, you know you had that you had that historic shootout between Appalachian and uh, Carolina in in week one that uh, you know gave gave all of us fits watching, especially Carolina fans like myself, uh, where that game was over about four different times for both teams, and uh, somehow you know just a, a ridiculous fourth quarter. Uh, the likes of which we really haven't seen, at least only one other time, so to speak. And then, uh, you know, they, they start out 0-1, but then they go into College Station uh, Saturday before last in Week 2 and upset Texas A&M. And, you know, 15 years after the upset in the big house, here we are talking about Appalachian again. And then, you know, they have one of the most climactic wins uh, or endings to a football game that, that you could ever see. Uh, against Troy, so I have a feeling that you know, no matter no matter where App ends up this season, no matter what their their record ends up being, I have a feeling it's not going to be the last time uh, that that we're talking about them this year. Because you know, as we as we mentioned last week, you know, the the Sun Belt is all about chaos, and uh, I'm sure we're going to get plenty more of that here in 2022. Another game that I previewed last week that I was able to watch most of was Syracuse and Purdue. It, it lived up to expectations. Syracuse coming out with a big win to stay undefeated on the season, 3-0 and now on the year. Just a really good back-and-forth kind of game between two teams. You don't really ever see play each other. Uh, it came down to the wire, was essentially decided by a good, a good defensive play, a pick six uh, toward the end. But, you know, it, it was one of those games where – even even with less than a minute to go, it, it, it still technically could have gone either way. So just a, a really, really fun matchup there. Um, and, and, and Syracuse, they they're really have become a, a, just a sneaky good team uh, this year. You know, 3-0 to start the year. And yeah, they technically haven't played the best teams on their schedule yet. Uh, I believe they have NC State here in a couple of weeks, and that's going to be a, a huge test for them. You know, this is a team that that can put points on the board, uh, and, and you know, by the handful, and they're not afraid by any means to throw the ball either. Um, so, it, uh, just a really, really fun team to turn on and watch. So, you know, if you're flipping through the channels and can't decide who you want to who you want to see play on a given Saturday afternoon, you know, if Syracuse is playing, I, I would at least stop by for a little bit because, you know, high tempo, high high electricity on that orange team. Uh, it, team to watch out for because with a few a few ranked teams coming up on their schedule they could they could potentially play spoiler there uh, to some of them uh down in the swamp florida just narrowly escapes uh escapes an upset from the university of south florida boy it, you know you, you never want to say that a game was necessarily 
give in to somebody, but the Bulls definitely didn't give themselves any favors uh, by how they managed the last, uh, I don't know, minute of, of that game. You know, uh, South Florida with, you know, took a big sack for a loss on third down or on, or on second down. And then on third down, when it's like third and 20 something, they called, you know, just a basic run play that got squashed after maybe a yard or two. And then there was a, you know, a, a funky, a funky field goal where the, it was a bad hold and the ball was basically kicked sideways off the ground. You know, it, it was one of those situations that there, there's two ways to look at it, right? South Florida definitely had, had their chance there to pull off the upset. And then Florida, by escaping by the skin of their teeth, I think it revealed a lot about the Gators. Now, you know, they're, they're coming off, uh, they've had a very, very high intensity, you know, first few weeks uh, here here in the young season. You know, they pull off the upset of Utah in week one, and so suddenly there's a, the, the talk of, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe we were wrong about Florida. Maybe maybe they were underranked. Maybe, uh, you know, their quarterback, Heisman hopeful, you know, that all this momentum, by, you know, and suddenly that comes crashing down against Kentucky where now the offense looks really bad. Quarterback play is not great. But then you look at a game like USF on the, on the schedule and you say, okay, well, you know, maybe this is a good rebound game for them. And even then they had to struggle in that one and things don't necessarily get any easier uh, this coming Saturday when they travel to Knoxville. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that game uh, here in just a little bit. Another game that that was kind of surprising uh, was the Oregon BYU game that happened on Saturday afternoon. Oregon pretty much handled BYU fairly easy, and it, it's 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 a it's a situation where there was so much so much stock being put into BYU as as an independent, and by the way that you know they had handled their schedule already and. By the way, that Oregon had struggled against Georgia, which, you know, more than likely everybody's going to struggle against Georgia this year. But I think there, this was seen more so as, you know, BYU was the better ranked team, but came into the game as a slight underdog in, in terms of, of betting odds. And that, that was interesting to a lot of people, including myself, because I truly believe that BYU was going to be the better team here. And then Oregon just goes out and, and plays the, their best game of the season. Uh, they, they, like I said, they handled BYU fairly well, so it's, a, it's definitely a, a disappointing game for Brigham Young, who... You know, I think there were certainly high hopes for. They were really starting to catch the attention of people, and then here they go dropping a big one. And then Oregon again had a very rough week one, and uh, you know was able to come out with a win in week two, and now has a big win against BYU in, in week three. I, you know, they're going to be a team to still kind of keep keep your eye on, and I think. I think too, that's going to go back to you know the the pack pack twelve or pack ten or whatever you want to call them now. Um, how they're not necessarily out of the conversation yet. You know, you, you have a one loss Utah team moving forward. Uh, you have you have Southern Cal who is really starting to look good, although there's some questions on their defense. Uh, you have Oregon who could potentially go end to end this season as a one loss team you know it's 
it's an interesting circumstance, and I think a lot of people were ready to write off that entire conference after week one. And and, and it's it's a fair notion notion to give, but I think there's still some still some talented teams out on the West Coast that I mean, heck, you, you look at a team like Washington. Right, uh, Washington taking down Michigan State in, in what was an upset on Saturday and handling Michigan State fairly easily. I, it, you know, I think that for so many years now there has been this notion of, of riding off that entire conference because it's it's the Cannibal Conference, right? Like they they pick each other apart. They have too many two loss teams by the time it's all said and done, and. I, <sighs> I think that if you write them off at this point after just the first three weeks when there's still potential for some of these teams, I think that's a mistake, at least at this point. Now, four weeks from now, my tone could change you know, completely on that, and we could have a very different conversation on the pack as a whole. Uh, but right now, I think there's still some potential there. Um, but the, the the main takeaway I, I took from Oregon having such a strong game against BYU, who I perceived to be a, a stronger team than they seemed on Saturday, was I think back to week one again, where Oregon just got demolished by Georgia. And so then that begs the question, is Georgia just that far ahead of everybody? Um, you know, they're, they're the number one team in the country and I don't foresee that changing anytime soon, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on Georgia just yet. Cause we're, we're going to talk about them a little bit more, uh, here later on in, on the show. Uh, but I, I do want to thank you for listening uh, to this podcast. I've, I've had a great time already this season. I've, you know, I feel like we've had so much fun things to talk about so far and plenty of fun to I think still come this year uh so it, it you know 2022 is living up to the hype already and, and I'm excited and I hope you are too so enough of me rambling we'll go ahead and jump into first segment of the show as always this is first down if you happen to be a fan of the Colorado Buffaloes you may want to skip ahead or better yet Find more productive ways to spend your time on Saturdays. Colorado, quite possibly, is the worst team in the country right now. And that's no exaggeration. The Buffaloes have been outscored 128 to 30 in three games. It is the first time in the 132 years of Colorado football that they have opened the season with three straight 25-point losses. Oh, and for you you betting fans out there, UCLA, who is Colorado's opponent this coming Saturday, has opened as a 21-point favorite. There might be a safe bet there. In these blowout losses, the Buffaloes have been outgained 1,346 yards to 736. Buffaloes have also allowed 348 rushing yards per game, dead last in the country, and 99 more yards than second-worst Louisiana Tech. To put it a little bit differently, Colorado opponents have rushed 152 times for 1,044 yards, averaging 6.9 yards per carry, and 13 touchdowns. The Colorado pass defense has looked all right, but to be fair, it's mostly because, one, TCU starting quarterback got injured in week one and his backup only threw three passes in the second half, 
because two, Air Force doesn't throw the ball ever, and three, Minnesota only attempted six passes before the two-minute drill, then in the second half were more interested in going home than putting up yards through the air. Colorado quarterbacks J.T. Shrout and Brendan Lewis have completed 47% of their passes for 324 yards and two touchdowns and one interception, plus two fumbled snaps. They're averaging 4.1 yards per attempt, which is the very bottom of the national leaderboards, alongside Joey Yellen of Hawaii and Diego Pavia of New Mexico State. By the way, for you sickos out there, Hawaii and New Mexico State play this weekend. So have fun with that one. Colorado's sub-90 QB ratings are worse than Nick Hirschman's when he threw two touchdowns and seven interceptions through the first three games in 2012 for Colorado. Why do I bring up 2012? Well, that's considered the team's worst year in Colorado history. Through the first three games, those Buffaloes were outscored by 62 points and outgained by 560 yards. Through three games in 2022, Colorado has been outscored by 98 points and outgained by 610 yards. The other key note about 2012 was that they were so bad that athletic director Mike Bone had no choice but to fire head coach John Embry. But this time around, that won't be as easy to pull off. You see, the buyout for Carl Carl Durrell is around $8.7 million dollars and since his five-year deal is all but guaranteed through the 2024 season. The troubling thing about Colorado is that there was a small belief that there would be some turnaround this season. Hell, I even had them as a pick-six game in week one against TCU, but I don't believe anyone expected the year to be this bad. All right, Colorado fans, it's safe to listen now. Second down. How often do we hear the narrative, well, you won a championship, but you won't be as good this season? You hear it constantly. It was said countless times regarding Georgia before the 2022 season even kicked off. Georgia's defense lost the majority of their starters from last season, which included eight NFL draft picks. So surely regression is bound to happen, right? And yet, The 2022 Georgia defense is off to a historic start. In three games this year, the Bulldogs have allowed just one touchdown and one field goal, totaling up to 10 points across three games. Their performance through the first three games has now put them into the college football history books, accomplishing something that hasn't been done in the sport since 1954 or at Georgia since 1927. Against South Carolina, the Bulldogs forced three interceptions and had nine QB hurries, six tackles for loss. In just a week before, they pitched a shutout against Samford, and in week one, they allowed just a lone field goal against the ranked Oregon Ducks. Through three weeks, the Bulldogs have won by a cumulative score of 130 to 10. Now, it should not come as a surprise that Georgia has a great defense once again. While we may not have expected it to be this good so far, keep in mind that last year's national championship was built on the back of superior coverage and tackling. If anything, the biggest knock on the champions, if you can even call it a knock, was their offense. And yes, heads turned when Stetson Bennett announced he would return to Georgia for another season. 
But with another year of experience comes more maturity for the Georgia offense. They are good. They look good. They are fun to watch, plain and simple. The Georgia offense has made heavy use of quick hitting hits to the perimeter this year, such as receiver screens and quick tosses to running backs. The Bulldogs have also utilized a large number of reverses, which also rely on perimeter blocking. The tight ends are vital as well, and having two blockers like Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington are huge as the Bulldogs look to create mismatches. Plus, it doesn't hurt that Washington checks in at six foot seven and 270 pounds. At the end of the day, the defending champs don't appear to have missed a beat on defense. And now, their offense is scoring at a higher rate than they were at this point last season. They are a well-oiled machine on both sides of the ball, set out to smother you on defense and then tear you apart play-by-play on offense. As it stands right now, Georgia is the best team in the country. And there is no real end in sight to that. Third down. Arizona State and head football coach Herm Edwards mutually agreed to part ways Sunday afternoon following the Sun Devils' disastrous upset to Eastern Michigan the day prior. Sunday's news was a foregone conclusion, really, to anyone who saw Edwards, the former New York Jets and Kansas City Chiefs head coach, getting confronted by Athletic Director Ray Anderson and school president Michael Crow on Saturday as he walked off the field following the 20-21 point loss. The initial hiring of Herm Edwards was a gamble, to say the least. Confusing, at best. We often scrutinize the decision of hiring a college coach into the NFL system because, well, it typically rarely works. Speaking of which, I checked the classifieds in the Charlotte Observer this morning and nothing yet. And yes, NFL coaches that have come down or even returned to the college system have seen success. Consider the likes of Steve Spurrier, Jim Harbaugh to an extent, Pete Carroll, and some guy named Nick Saban. But Edwards was a little bit different. At the time, he had already been retired for nine years, sitting in a studio, and had no real head coaching experience at the collegiate level. In fact, the last time he had even coached at this level was in 1989, where he served as the defensive backs coach for San Jose State. And then, here we are five seasons later at Arizona State. His head coaching tenure in college looks much like it did in the NFL. Middle of the road, lackluster, with just a few small flashes here and there. Edwards managed to hold on to his job after an up-and-down 2021 but another shaky loss led to his firing three games into his fifth season. Arizona State is still awaiting word on possible NCAA sanctions for allegedly hosting recruits on campus during an NCAA-mandated COVID-19 dead period in 2020. Not to mention now the speculation that the staff underneath him at Arizona State was leaking information to opposing coaches in order to get Edwards fired. Wouldn't that be something? In his tenure, Edwards went 46 and 26 at Arizona State, including 1 and 2 this season and 17 and 14 overall in the Pac-12. The Sun Devils never won more than 8 games in a season under Edwards and fell short of Anderson's goal of playing in major bowl games. As it stands now, running backs head coach Sean Aguano will serve as an interim coach. And if things seem shaky now, 
for the Sun Devils. It's only going to get a little tougher. You see, Arizona State begins Pac-12 play with three ranked teams coming up. Number 13, Utah at home on Saturday, followed by number 7, Southern Cal, and number 18, Washington. Good luck. Fourth down. The ever-changing landscape of college football conferences have resulted in the abolition of annual rivalry meetings, and there really appears to be no end in sight to that. This week it was announced that the Bedlam series, the perennial clash between the Oklahoma Sooners and Oklahoma State Cowboys, will come to an end in 2025. This comes as a result of Oklahoma heading to new pastures in the SEC. The Bedlam series began in 1904, three years before Oklahoma became a state. The schools have met 116 times and have played annually for the past 112 years, making Bedlam the nation's second longest current uninterrupted college football rivalry. Conference realignment has upended several rivalry games that took place across college football annually. Oklahoma and Nebraska recently went 11 years between games from 2010 to 2021 after the Cornhuskers left the Big 12 for the Big 10. And the team, the two teams did reunite for a home-and-home series in 2012. The backyard brawl between West Virginia and Pittsburgh was on ice for 11 years after the Mountaineers left the Big East for the Big 12. They played their first game against each other since 2011 on September 1st with Pitt getting a 38-31 win in what was a tremendous game. The Lone Star Showdown between Texas and Texas A&M hasn't been played since 2011, though... It will likely make a comeback when the Longhorns join their in-state rivals in the SEC in 2025. The biggest reason Bedlam won't continue is because the schools share similar scheduling philosophies, with Oklahoma State expected to maintain a nine-game Big 12 schedule and the SEC expected to implement a nine-game conference schedule when Oklahoma and Texas join. Although Mike Gundy, of course, has different thoughts on why this has shaken out the way it has. So while this isn't the most evenly matched all-time series either, with Oklahoma dominating Bedlam with a 90-19-7 edge in the series, Oklahoma State did win last year's game 37-33. And you can almost always expect this game to be a shootout and a fun game to watch. I've said it before and I'll say it again, traditions are what make college football so great with rivalries being a big part of that. Sure, there are plenty of good changes that have come along with the sport in recent years, but the loss of historic rivalries feel, well, unfortunate, and somehow should be avoided. And now we'll send things over to our official mascot correspondent, Mr. Alex Butler, with this week's Mascot Minute. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, we have one of the more unusual mascots, and that is the Tree from Stanford University. The Tree is a member of the Leland Stanford Junior University Marching Band and appears at football games, basketball games, and other events where the band performs. The Tree is representative of El Palo Alto, the tree that appears on both the official seal of the university and the municipal seal of Palo Alto, Stanford's nearby city. From 1930 until 1972, Stanford's sports teams had been noted as the Indians. And during the period from 1951 to 1972, Prince Lightfoot was the official mascot. 
But in 1972, Native American students and staff members successfully lobbied University President Richard Lyman to abolish the Indian name along with what they had come to perceive as an offensive and demeaning mascot. Stanford's teams reverted unofficially to the name Cardinal, the color that had represented the school before 1930. From 1972 until 1981, Stanford's official nickname was the Cardinal, but during this time there was debate among students and administrators concerning what the mascot and team name should be. A 1972 student referendum on the issue was in favor of restoring the Indian, while a second 1975 referendum was against. This 1975 vote included new suggestions, many alluding to the industry of the school's founder, railroad tycoon Leland Stanford, the robber barons, the sequoias, the trees, the cardinals, the railroaders, the spikes, and the huns. The robber barons won, but the university's administration refused to implement the vote. In 1978, 225 varsity athletes started a petition for the mascot to be the Griffin, but this campaign also failed. Finally, in 1981, President Donald Kennedy declared that all Stanford athletic teams would be represented exclusively by the color Cardinal. However, in 1975, the band had performed a series of halftime shows that facetiously suggested several other new mascot candidates it considered particularly appropriate for Stanford, including the steaming manhole, the french fry, and the tree. The tree ended up receiving so much positive attention that the band decided to make it a permanent fixture, and the tree came to be embraced by Stanford community at large. The original tree costume was conceived and constructed by Christine Hudson. When she left Stanford, she passed along the costume and the role of the tree to a conga drum player in the band, Robert David Siegel. In the spring of 1987, Paul Kelly wrote a column in the Stanford Daily lamenting the lame stature of the school's mascot since it was, at that time, just kind of a big green dress. Responding to the dare, the drum major and others responded by having tree tryouts at the shack at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Kelly was the only one who showed up. They put a song on the tape while the keg flowed freely. Kelly made a fool of himself dancing. At 5 a.m., approximately 25 band members were outside his dorm with All I Ever. They gave Kelly one week to prepare a costume before a men's home basketball game. Kelly spent the following summer designing and building the first true Stanford tree complete with surf shorts and white tails as a tribute to drum major Jimmy Jett. At the 1987 big game, Kelly was attacked by several Cal students who had run onto the field during the halftime show, barely escaping. A rash of recent troubles has brought the tree even more notoriety in college sports circles. In February 2006, then-tree Aaron Lashnitz was suspended until the end of her term as the tree after her blood alcohol level was found to be 0.157, almost twice the legal limit in California, during a men's basketball game between Stanford and Cal. UC Berkeley police observed her drinking from a flask during the game and cited her for public drunkenness after the team participated in the second round of the NCAA tournament in Denver. The tree was subsequently banned from the 2007 women's tournament. The tree was also featured in a few ESPN This Is Sports Center commercials. One example was when Atlanta Braves outfielder Jason Hayward was talking about how baseball bats were made when the tree in the background fell over. Another example was golfer Bubba Watson and his caddy were playing through the tree, which he referred to as an obstacle. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on Mascot Minute? Hit us up on Twitter, at Chatting Yardage, to let us know. Once again, I'm Alex Butler, and this has been your Mascot Minute. Now it's time for Pick 6 Games of the Week. 
These, of course, are six games that I find interesting, and I believe you should too. And as always, later on, uh, before the weekend hits, we'll have a graphic on our Twitter account for you to follow along with the pick six games of the week that I have selected. And also, we've been putting up a poll for each of these games. It's kind of a fun little pick em, so that's always fun. Usually that is up by Friday mid-morning or so, so that way for all these uh, 12 o'clock kickoff games on Saturday, the results are in before those games start. First game of the week on this week's pick six, number five, Clemson at number 21, Wake Forest. This is a 12 o'clock kickoff game on ABC, the 87th all-time meeting between the two schools with Clemson, leading the series by over 50 wins, currently riding a 13-game winning streak in this series. However, despite the higher ranking, Clemson only enters this game as a seven-point favorite due large in part to their offensive struggles. Wake, on the other hand, are riding the excellent experience of quarterback Sam Hartman, who already has seven touchdown passes just within two starts this season. You know, ACC conference games such as this, where there's still a lot of questions around the conference as a whole of who's going to be on top once the season's over with, are, are going to be fun to watch. And this one is no exception. It's two of the best teams in the entire ACC, if not the two best, are, are going to clash on Saturday. And this this won't be an easy win whatsoever for Clemson. But on the other hand, this could be a huge win for Wake Forest, uh, who desperately wants to get back to the ACC championship game in December after falling just short last year. So fun one to watch there. Second game of the week, TCU at SMU. That is another 12 o'clock kickoff, this time on ESPNU. Horn Frogs enter this game a one-and-a-half point favorite. Fun fact, the Mustangs and the Horn Frogs play for the right to keep the game's famed Iron Skillet for a year. So this is the Iron Skillet game. This will also be the first time that TCU head coach Sonny Dykes will face his former team, SMU. Dykes coached the Mustangs for four seasons from 2018 to 2021, so uh, it'll be an interesting homecoming for him as he returns back to the school that he just left with his new program. And really, when you look at the stats up and down the sheet, this is an incredibly evenly matched game from rushing yards, loud gain, passing, everything. This is an incredibly evenly matched game. And like I said, TCU is only a one and a half point favorite in this one. So this could be a very sneaky good game to watch on Saturday and and certainly one to keep your eye on uh, if you're able to. Game number three that you should be on the lookout for is one that I don't think I I could have seen myself picking uh, to, to highlight, but you can't deny with the season that both teams are already having that this is going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, Duke at Kansas, 12 o'clock, FS1. Duke and Kansas comes early this year, but not on the hardwood. Uh, not not the kind of game that you, uh, you expect to be played when you hear those two schools mentioned going against each other. But the two typical basketball powerhouses are both undefeated at 3-0, and to the surprise of quite a few. Honestly, uh, Duke comes in under new leadership this season. Kansas was expected to be better, but comes into the comes into this contest with one of the top scoring offenses in the country. Um, so the interesting thing about this one, not only from a from a matchup standpoint, from the fact that they're both undefeated, but I think there's a lot to learn 
about both teams once this is all said and done. Um, you know, how good is Duke? How good is Kansas? You know, Kansas, like I said, is a nine-point favorite in this one, um, and a lot of the a lot of the predictors are picking them to win pretty handily. But I, f- I feel like too, there's still a lot we don't know necessarily about either team. Uh, so this this will be a revealing game for for both fan bases. Fourth game of the week, uh, location of college game day this Saturday as well. Number 20, Florida, taking on number 11, Tennessee. That is a 3.30 kickoff game on CBS, your SEC game of the week. 2022, as I mentioned earlier, has been a wild ride for the Florida Gators so far. Good win in week one, a detrimental loss and a revealing loss in week two, and then a close call just last week. And the funny thing about that is that all of those games happened at home, so Florida hits the road for the very first time this season here in week three. And boy, do they go to a tough stadium for their very first road game. Um, you know, Tennessee is in their their best position, seemingly, that they've been in in, in years. You know, quickly approaching a top ten ranking uh, considered to be, you know, probably the, by the time it's all said and done, uh, potentially the second best team in the SEC East this season, um, but again, it's a season that they're, they're going to have some tough matchups coming up, uh, but it Tennessee, when they're in a position like this, when they are ranked, and, you know, it's a raucous fan base already, but that's just going to add to how loud Neyland Stadium is, is going to be, and it's a toughest place as any to play in uh, if you're a visiting team, but with those expectations, comes a lot of pressure on Tennessee in this one. And, you know, they're, they're coming in as an 11-point favorite in this game. And so there's a lot of pressure on Tennessee to win. But then there there's also, for Florida, there's an, there's an urgency to win, right? They, they've got to reestablish who they are because now a loss here means that you've lost to two conference rivals already, and not that that necessarily shuts down your season and it's a total wash, but it certainly dashes any large expectations you may have had for yourself by dropping this game to Tennessee. So a lot on the line for both teams here in this one. Um, it's it's always typically a good game, except for the years that you know Florida has blown Tennessee out of the water. Uh, so you know th- th- this could be a fun one that the Vols, could possibly pull out late in the game, but a good one nonetheless uh, for the afternoon. Another good rivalry game we've got uh, on Saturday afternoon, my fifth game of the week, is number 22 Texas at Texas Tech. This is another 3.30 kickoff on ESPN. Uh, Texas Longhorns and the Texas Tech Red Raiders have played uninterrupted since 1960, and they actually battle for a trophy known as the Chancellor's Spurs, which originated in 1996. So, we love rivalry games that play for something, and this one does just that. This will be Texas Tech's third straight week against a ranked opponent, and this time it's against an annual rival. So, you can't tell me that that place is not going to be a little juiced up for this one, especially considering there's there's still questions at the quarterback position for Texas. Um, you know, is Ewers going to be healthy or not by Saturday? There's still real no decision on that. So that gives some uncertainty, really, uh, for offensive production against what will be a very hungry Texas Tech team. 
And then my sixth game of the week, the Southwest Classic, number 10, Arkansas, heads to Texas against number 23, Texas A&M. This game is being played in AT&T Stadium in Jerry World. That is a 7 o'clock kickoff on ESPN. Texas A&M is coming in as a two-and-a-half point favorite in this one. Arkansas is looking to get back on track after a very uneasy 38-27 win over FCS Missouri State. Don't let that final score fool you. This was a close one. This was a game that Missouri State controlled for the vast majority, and Arkansas was able to pull out late. Um especially against uh, against their previous head coach. Uh, th- this was this was a bit of a scare uh, for for the pigs. And Texas A&M is looking to notch their second straight victory uh, against uh, against a ranked team after pulling off a, a good win. Well, pulling off a win against Miami last week. Miami certainly hurt itself aplenty in, in that one as well, leading the game in first downs, but no touchdowns is, is an interesting way to go about things for the Hurricanes. But A&M, of course, is going with Max Johnson at quarterback now, and that seemed to certainly help them last week in, in terms of offensive production. Uh, and this actually, so a fun fact about this Saturday, will actually be the second back, this will be back-to-back years now, where Arkansas and A&M both, are ranked within the top 25 whenever they meet. So should be some should be some good fuel here in this one primetime game on ESPN. Uh, Texas A&M has won nine of the last ten meetings against Arkansas. But the thing to keep in mind about this, just similar to the Florida-Tennessee game, this is a game that both teams desperately have to win. Uh, so despite being a lower-ranked team, A&M is still a slight favorite ahead of number 10, Arkansas. Arkansas is coming into this game trying to show that, hey, we're supposed to be here in the top 10, even though some folks after the past couple of weeks are starting to turn against us. We're trying to show that that we're here to stay. So could be a good one there uh, at, in AT&T Stadium on Saturday night. As I said, uh, these games will be posted on the show's Twitter account Friday morning, uh, along with corresponding polls for each and every single game uh, to kind of get your feedback on who you think is going to pull out the win this weekend. And, of course, in in those polls, too, I'd love to know what you're going to be watching, what games have your interest. You know, there's so many games across an entire weekend that – it's hard to keep up, and, and these are just my opinion of the six that I'm most interested in, but I want to hear your feedback as well. So again, check us out on Twitter at Chatting Yardage to be part of the conversation. The Extra Point. The Extra Point this week goes to Louisiana Tech. While they may have lost to Clemson in week three, it was not the scoreboard that mattered Saturday night. In case you had missed it, the younger sister of Clemson sophomore Brian Brissy, Ella, lost her battle with brain cancer last week. She was only 15 years old. On Saturday, every single member of the Louisiana Tech team brought a handwritten letter for the Brissy family. There are so many things bigger than football. And if we were to take away one lesson from this situation, it's that compassion and empathy can go a very long way in our two behaviors we should all strive for. So playing us out this week is the Band of Pride with the Louisiana Tech fight song. Until next week, I'm Cam Matthews.
This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter, at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode. Hey, hey.